0: We're going through the book of Ephesians, and as we're going through the book of Ephesians, we talked a couple of weeks ago that the book can be divided in half. Uh, once you get chapters 1, 2, and 3, it's talking about the believer's wealth. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, in Christ, in the heavenly places. So when you're looking at that passage there, um, just an obscene amount of wealth, and it's all under the, the center of salvation what we received under the center of salvation. So that's what chapters one, two, and three is talking about. And then chapter four starts with um, a different word that is driving the next three chapters, and that word is walk. Uh, Walk. Since you have received this wealth, therefore walk. And as we look at this um, passage this morning, you will notice the word walk being through the center of all of it. And if you notice the passage, even last week we even had the word walk, So we're just going to observe this passage, unpack it, and see which way God wants us to walk. Ephesians 4, 17-24 says this, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as Gentiles also walk in the fatality of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in that way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside your old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust and deceit and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on your new self, which is in likeness of God, has given, given and created in righteousness and holiness and truth. So just look at this passage. The author wants to communicate to you how to change. Paul has written this passage for the purpose of saying, this is how you change. Do you want to change? Let me give you principles on how to change. And when we bring up the topic of do you want to change, I think every single one of us is in this room of what we want to change. Because all of us want to change. Change what? Well, we can go with addictive behaviors. You know, I'm addicted to coffee in the morning and I need to try to get off it. Or I'm addicted to food. I'm addicted to alcohol. I'm addicted to drugs. I'm addicted to sex. I'm addicted to all these substance abuses and I want to change. And the question that we come up with is we want to change is... I want to, but I can't. I'm struggling with changing, and I can't. I got these things I want out of my life, but I can't get them out of my life. Is there any answer that the Bible gives? Is there any answer anywhere on this planet that would say, this is the area that if you want to change, this is what you need to do? But we can go away from, you know, substance abuse or things that we're even addicted to, and we can start talking about our uncontrolled emotions Anger, I have an anger problem, but I want to change it. But it doesn't seem like I am changing it. It keeps coming out of me and losing my family as a result. You know, that could be what you're thinking. I'm not telling my story up here. I'm just saying that, yeah, there's times we carry anger. I want to stop, but we can't. Carry depression. We want to get out of it, but we can't. We carry hate. We carry unforgiveness. And we want to get out of it, but we can't. And where our call is, I want to change, but how do I get rid of this bitterness? How do I get rid of this fear? Because I say the words I want to change, but there's no steps to let me overcome it. My tongue—I want to change it. It often says too much, or it often says too little. It often says what it shouldn't, and it often doesn't say what it needs to. You know, all of us are in the same boat. (laughs) That tongue is just a wild animal, and yeah, of course, James talks about it in regards to it being a wild animal. Anxiety. Some people are shy. Some people have self-conscious. Some people are loud. You think, if I could just change this in my life, that would be good. We're all having problems of controlling our thoughts, controlling our time, controlling our emotions, controlling our tongue, and controlling our money. And we want to ask the Word of God this morning, do you have any answer in Scripture that would say, can you give me principles, just step by step, on what I need if I am going to change. Well, then this is the passage for you, because this tells you how to change. Look at the, the passage, and I just want to break it down as a whole of how it works. In, in verse 22, you see, lay aside your old self, and then on verse 24, it says, put on a new self. So you need to take off, and you need to what? Put on. Now, what do you take off? If you look at 22. Well, 17 through 21 explains everything you had in your former life that you need to take off. And then in 22, what it does, it says you need to put on, and then it starts talking about the things to put on inside the passage as well. So there's six principles of what you need to do to change. And I would say that if you master these principles, you will change like Apostle Paul did at the road to Damascus, Once was dead, but now I'm alive and completely different as a result. Mastering these six principles, three, take off, and then three, put on. What are they? Let's start with the three, take offs. Don't walk in the futility of your mind. What does that mean? It's walking meaninglessly. It's walking with no purpose. It's walking with no aim. It's walking with no vision. It doesn't make any sense of why I even exist. You have to find out why you exist if you're ever going to change, because what our purpose is in life is what's going to change us, because once we find our purpose, then we can move to change. So if I ask you really fast, what's your purpose in life? What is your answer? Because whatever your answer is will determine if you're going to change or not. I wanted to see what answers are out there. I mean, I have an answer, in my mind, which I think is a biblical answer. But what if we just pull the Bible aside? Is there an answer of the purpose of the meaning in life? Um, I found one article in um, Psychology Today, and uh, I wanted to know, somebody that does not know God, I will give you the answer you know, of, of the purpose and meaning. But somebody who does not know God, is there a purpose and meaning and what is it? And this is, in Psychology Today, um, is the answer. And I just want to l- read a little bit of the article. The question of the meaning of life is perhaps one that we'd rather not ask for fear of the answer or a lack thereof. That's how the paragraph started. And I just want to tell you what's going to happen as I continue to read this article. It's going to talk about God, 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 all the way through this. I just want you to know this is a secular article that wants nothing to do with God. You'll see that in the article. But when you start talking about purpose, you can't can't throw God. You can't throw God out. So let's continue with the article. Still today, many people believe that we, humankind, are the creation of a supernatural entity called God. I did not propose to rehearse the well-worn arguments for or against the existence of God, and still, less to take a side. But even if God exists, and even if he had an intelligent purpose in creating us, no one really knows what this purpose might be. Or that is especially meaningful. The second law of thermodynamics states that the entropy of closed systems, including the universe itself, increases up to the point of which equilibrium is reached, and God's purpose in creating us, and indeed all the nature, might have been no more lofty than than the catalyst this process much as soil organisms catalyst the decomposition of organic matter. I don't know what that paragraph means. <laughs> but it does, it does say it what it means. I'm sorry. It does say what it means in the next paragraph. If our God-given purpose is to act as a super-efficient heat dissipator, um, that's what it means, is it we are a heat dissipator, then having no purpose at all, is better than having this sort of purpose because it frees us to be the authors of our purpose, or purpose is, and so to lead truly dignified and meaningful lives. In fact, following this logic, having no purpose at all is better than having any kind of predetermined purpose. In short, even if God exists, and even if He an intelligent purpose had an intelligent purpose in creating us. We do not know what the purpose might be. And whatever it might be, we would rather be able to do without it, or at least to ignore it or discount it. I want to know a purpose, because if I'm ever going to change, I I need to know a purpose. This is not giving me a purpose. This is discounting the purpose of God. All of us want a purpose, because if we have a purpose, we can change. We can move towards a purpose. But if there's no purpose, then there's no hope for change. We're just going to sit and we're going to spin our wheels, our wheels that if you would just give it to me rather than discount the Bible that I believe has it, because then we can change. And if we don't, we live a purposeless life. The only way you can have a purpose is to literally understand what's going to take place beyond the grave because we all know we're going to end there. And that's why the first sentence says, the question of the meaning of life is perhaps one that we would rather not ask for fear of the answer or the lack thereof. We have no idea what it is. We have no idea what it is. Ephesians 4, 17 says this. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walked. The Gentiles are ones that do not know God. And then he says, aggressively, in the futility of the mind. Futility of your mind means empty, senseless, aimless, unsuccessful, worthless. If you do not know what's going on outside of the grave, then there is no purpose because we all know that's where we're going to end up. And if you want to change, good luck, because you're not on any sort of dynamiter that would allow you to change until this question is answered you might say well mike what's your purpose if i have to give a one liner i would just say to go to heaven and take everybody i can with me just one line <laughs> jesus laughed heaven and he came to earth. And when he came to earth, he lived a perfect life, the life I could not live. And he went to the cross, and he put all my sins upon his shoulder, and went to the grave, on the, after dying on the cross, went to the grave, and rose again, and is in heaven, preparing an everlasting home for me. Everything he did is a gift to me, and if I embrace it, I'll love him my whole life. And if I love him my whole life for embracing a gift like that, why wouldn't I tell the world? Why wouldn't I tell the world? Well, if this is the purpose, the purpose is going to do something to me. It's just it's going to do something to me. It's going to do something to us. It's going to do something to everybody who believes in that purpose. Do not walk in the futility of your mind where people just don't understand that God exists because they're not going anywhere. If you want to change, you need to find out first what the purpose is, what the meaning is of life, Number two, don't walk in a darkened understanding. Walking without the whole picture in mind is what it means with a darkened understanding. If you're going to invest money, you will always have the whole picture in mind, period, because you're going to sacrifice. I mean, if you're going to give money to an investment, you're going to see the whole picture in mind. In other words, I need to retire, and I'm going to retire at the age 65. Therefore, I'm going to do this now so I can get this later. That's That's an investment. But if you go, I'm going to do this now, and who cares what I get later, then you won't invest any money because that's just living here in the moment. But if you're going to invest money, you're going to say, okay, I need to retire in 25 years. I'm going to just look at this whole picture in mind. And whenever we invest money or put something down on the table, we always have the whole picture in mind. And once we see the picture in mind, we start to um, invest. Well, what if um, your investor or your financial advisor says, you know, you need to invest money for retirement, but you also need to know that the day that you retire is the day that the market's going to crash. <laughs> I can see it, foresee it in the future, and it's actually going to happen exactly on your day. And that day that the market crashes, your investments will not only turn, return into a return, and I didn't mean to say it that way, not you only get a return on your investments, your investments will actually turn into a debt, and then, after your investments turn into a debt, it's going to take your entire retirement to pay for it, and you live in it. So, in other words, when you work is your freedom, but when you retire is your slavery. What are you going to say? Oh, I'm not going to give any money to them. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to invest in a market that is going to crash. Why? Because it is absolutely stupid. I mean, it just is. It's just absolutely stupid. But yet, people do invest into a market because they don't think it will. Crash. But here's life, and look at life. Say some of the wisest words in the Bible. Just in a sense that the market's going to crash the day we die. <laughs> Everything is going to crash the day we die. So if our picture is from here to the day we die, we are making investments into this world that are worth absolutely nothing. They're worthless. They're meaningless. They're no good. All of our sacrifices that we make, there's no reason why you have to control your anger. There's no reason why you have to do anything because this is where our picture's at. But if you say, I need to look at the whole picture, the whole picture, and what is the whole picture? The whole picture is Christ saying, you will retire one day, and it will be the day that your body goes six feet under in the grave. And as a result of all of your investment if you don't know me, you'll have a debt to pay off for eternity. And if you know me, rejoice in my Lord in my presence for the rest of, my, the rest of eternity. You just got to take the whole picture in mind. If you don't put the whole picture in mind, well, what does Paul say? You're ignorant. I mean, he's trying to be as gentle as he can, but let's read the passage. Being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of their ignorance that is in them. I'm investing into a market that is going to drop, that is ignorant. And Paul is trying to say it as nicely as you can, because of the hardness of their heart. I will not embrace God because I don't like him. Therefore, therefore, my life will be mine. My life will be mine. If your picture does not go beyond the grave, why change? There's no reason to change. There's no reason to change at all. Because what are we doing otherwise? What we're doing otherwise is we're making a major out of the minors. Rather than making the major out of you're making the major out of the minors for the purpose of not fixing the major in the end. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Number three, don't walk with a consuming addiction. That makes you callous and hard-hearted, walking to feed an appetite is what that means. I have cows, and, and I've raised cows for like 10 years, and uh, in the past, what we do is uh, I get my cows pregnant every year, then I sell the calves or I butcher the calves, and um, and we get a bull every single year, and sometimes I even buy a bull, and then we start passing the bull around the church, and then I get it back, you know, three months out of the year, give it to somebody else three months out of the year, three months out of the year. But whenever a bull starts to come on my property, my two daughters go, oh, great. Bulls are mean. Oh, great. I can't go out in the field because they are nasty. I'm a scared of our land, you know, when a bull is out um, on the field. And I say, you know, the bull's not mean and nasty. Just sit down and look at his beauty and his strength and his majesty. I mean, he's, he's a big fellow. Just look at him and enjoy him. No, we don't like him because he's nasty, mean, ugly, mean, and nasty. What is a bull's life? Just to say it rather blunt, a bull exists to eat and to have sex. That's it. Just eat and have sex. Now, with a, with a, a career like that, you would think that that would be the most happiest animal in the world. And that my daughters would go, why is that bull so happy? Well, let me explain how things work. You know, this is his career, and this is his job. But he's not happy. He's mean, and he's nasty. But my daughters, they love my cows. Why? Because you can go and you can scratch their ears. They're kind, they're gentle, they're sweet. In fact, the bull, you stay away from. But when you go to the cows, you can get as close as you want to them. You enjoy them. What's what's the reason why a cow exists? A cow gets, you know, pregnant every single year. What does it do? It takes care of its young. So just looking at the psychology of that, why does a bull mean and nasty, and the cows completely nice and gentle? And the answer to that is that if you exist for the purpose of feeding yourself, you will get hard, mean, and nasty. If you exist for the purpose of feeding others, you'll be gentle, soft, and accepting. And it happens with all our animals. Somebody in the past said, my rooster, I finally know why he's such a jerk. (laughs) But if we really look at our lives, if we exist to take hold of everything we want, when we want, how we want, in which way we want, it's not going to make us happier. It's going to make us meaner, more mad, more angry, more destructive. Our families are going to actually fall apart, and we'll have no idea, no reason, no understanding of why they do it. Why has my family fallen apart? And your wife or your husband just want to say, because you exist to feed yourself, and it makes you angry, and it makes you bitter. It's a way that we function. And literally, we can function as beasts if we just turn loose and take what we want. We live in a scary world, and the reason why we live in a scary world is because we have something we can put in our pocket, even called a cell phone, that feeds the appetite, whether it's shopping, whether it's news, whether it's movies, whether it's drama, whether it's pornography. And the more and more we get, because we just take it whenever we want, the more we get, the more we feed ourselves, the more we desire, the more we get is just turning us, can turn us into monsters. The way that things are designed is that Anything that you call your master and Lord and feed yourself with will give you death unless it is God. If God is your appetite, if God is the one you go after, if God is the one that you open up the scripture and say, I want to feed myself, do you know what you're going to get? You're going to get life and you're going to get life to the fullest. If you take anything else outside of God and you say, this is where my appetite is going, what's it going to do? It's just going to create death. A deeper hunger. And then when it's not satisfied, you're going to get harder, harder, and harder, and more callous. Ephesians, Paul makes mention of it. And they, having become callous, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. They become callous, they become hard, they become angry, because greedy people will never find life outside of it. So he says, put these three things off. Put them off. But then he gives three things that you need to put on. What are those three things you need to put on? Here's the first one. Walk by having a personal relationship with Christ. I um, went through memory lane last yesterday, and by going through photo albums, and as I go through photo albums, I tell you, just watching my kids when they're young uh, is just a blessing, we'll put it that way. And uh, since I went through memory lane, and I just wanted to actually show you guys some pictures. And, um, you know, I just pull out the picture. I take a screenshot of the picture and uh, explain a little bit of the pictures that we were walking through. Here's my daughter and uh, a horse. I'll tell you that me being able, to be a- being able to be underneath her foot to put her on that horse and then to watch her run that horse, you talk about a blessing, (laughs) a position I love being in, a position that I liked. The next picture here. Of course, you know, I always talk about rafting, so there's my girls with me in my rafting. Another picture that I like, this is me doing a ponytail. Um, The reason why my girls can do a ponytail today is because I can do a ponytail, I did a ponytail for them. You know, my wife did work full-time, so some of my responsibility was to put a ponytail in, and after I raised my kids, I, I read something somewhere that if you take a vacuum cleaner and you vacuum up their hair like this, you can actually go like this, and it can be really fast. And I wish I read that a long time before I started raising my children because this was an absolute pain. But I got through it, and they know how to do it because of me. Go ahead to the next picture. And yes, of course, you know, you gotta, your dad's got to make them look good in regards to face painting, and that's me doing that. And then the next picture... You know, there's a lot of swings in this world. The problem is that swings don't go high enough, in my opinion. They just go rink-de-rink, back and forth. So I wanted to find a swing that could launch my children into the air. And so this is a swing that I'd hold onto the rope all the way down back, and then if I pulled it straight up, my child would actually just fly into there. It's about 30 feet in the air, and they go all the way back and forth. And this was a good time. It really made the neighbors nervous for some reason, but that was all right. And we could do the next one. Teaching my children how to ride a bike, you know, I just threw a sweatshirt around them and said, Don't worry, if you fall off, I'll just hold you up and let the bike go and do whatever they did. And that's Maya learning how to uh, ride a bike going down memory lane. How are children educated? They're not educated by the way we think they're educated. They're not educated because we tell them, because we talk to them. They're educated in this way they're educated by looking, they're educated by observing. They're educated by being. They're educated by laughing. They're educated by being crying. They're educated by hearing. They're educated by sharing. Or they're educated by the lack of any of those. What happens is that kids learn and are taught by their parents more by being than by even a mouth. So as we are raising our kids we are training them up in a way that they can go by their observation of how we live specifically with them or how we don't live with them in regards to being absent from them. That's how a child um, is raised. So when we start looking at our life and our Christian life and, and we say, you know, I want to be somebody who's going to change. I want to be somebody that my life is going to be molded Paul gives us an extreme amount of wisdom just in these next two verses. He says this, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. You heard him next to you. You've heard him in the word. You know exactly who he is. You know how he behaves. You know how he responds because you know him, what? Specifically, personally. You are taught in him. That's how a child is taught. A child is taught being with their parents, being with their mother, being with their father, and their their antennas are up and they're learning like crazy. And as a result, you're going to get a product not because of what you say, but because of being with, because of a relationship with, because of climbing mountains and valleys, going into valleys with your children. That's when they're being educated it's the same way with God. Until we can grasp that Christianity is not just about something you do to please a master, but it's literally about somebody who you know that is with you every step of the way. And when you figure out that Christianity is about who you know every step of the way, you will receive a smile in your dark moments, a touch in the moments you think nobody else is around and exists. You will no longer try to be doing everything so your God loves you, but you would just do everything in regards to, thank you so much for being with me. And your life would turn into a life of celebration and a life of change, just as a result of you making the turn, that Christianity is about a relationship with God rather than me just submitting to a master that will beat the crud out of me if I don't do it. Paul wants to give you wisdom on how to change, and he knows that if you take a child and you just beat the crud out of him every time he doesn't believe you or obey you, that it's not gonna work. That's why Paul gives us this statement. You are taught inside of God being with him. You hear him, and you are taught when you're with him. Number five, walk by being renewed in the spirit of your mind. What is a new mind, renewed in mind? It's a a new purpose, a new meaning, a new worldview, a new picture, new life, new family, a new master. Your whole mind changes when you receive God. You've received a new master, a new kingdom, a new purpose. Encourage you to shop for a purpose. There's none out there. Shop all you want for a purpose. There's no other purpose out there because we've got to get beyond the grave and there's only one answer to get beyond the grave and that's, you know, that's the word of God, Christianity. We need to renew our mind with that new purpose. It is then that we're going to change. And the more that we understand that our mind must adapt to who God is, the more that we will change. Ephesians four seventeen says this, and that you being renewed in the spirit of your mind. The number six, Walk in your new identity. What's identity is what a person is. What am I? What are you? If somebody asks you that question, what are you? you know, Your answer is going to determine how you behave. It's going to determine how you live. It's going to determine how you feel. It's going to determine who you are. So if you ask the question, who are you? Um, whatever your answer is, is going to control you the rest of your life. What is your answer when somebody asks you a question, who are you? I'm a child of the king. Is that your answer? I am a child of the king. I've received this amazing message that has been given to me by Christ, leaving heaven, coming to earth, living a perfect life, dying and raising again, and going to heaven to prepare a place for me, and that is my home. It's going to change everything about you. Paul knows that there's no other other thing that's going to change you. We see it, the road to Damascus. Paul took it, and it's just like, boy, he changed everything about him. I'm going to kill Christians, and I'm going to exist to try to let people know that you need to be a Christian. Changed everything about you. Look at every review. how to change. Don't walk in the futility of your mind. Don't walk meaninglessly. Don't walk with a darkened understanding, with walking without the whole picture in your mind. It doesn't work. Don't walk with consuming addiction that makes you callous and hard-hearted, walking to feed an appetite. Walk having a personal relationship with Christ walk by being renewed in the spirit of your mind, and walk in a a new identity that is in Christ. So if you look at that and say, you know, I need to change. These are the six principles that Paul gives us. He's going to move into the chapter, just to let you know what's going to happen, of very basic life principles of what you need to do, because we're talking about behavior, and he's going to move into it. But he's given us, this is how you move into it, Therefore, if you're going to do anything that I'm going to mention further in chapter 4, this is where we need to go. So I just want to challenge you and encourage you is just to take these six principles. Okay, I want to be somebody who's going to change. Pray the six principles. Have them on the forefront of your mind. Know that this is what controls you, moves you, and guides you. Or if you are in a marriage, in a struggling relationship, why don't you put the principles right before each of you? And say, you know what? We're in a struggling relationship. Let's take these six principles because we want this struggling relationship to not struggle. And we want to change. Let's make this a base. That's the reason why Paul gave us this passage. As a base. Father, we are people that need to change. And we know it. There's a lot of things that are in our lives, God, that, um, that are ruining our relationships, that are ruining us. That are ruining even the glory of your name, God, and how we behave and respond. God, we just want to take the principles that Paul has put on paper, hang on to them, and let them rule our lives. Thank you, God, that uh, we don't have to guess what our purpose is, but that Paul, in his word, in your word, has made it extremely clear of what our purpose is in life. Thank you that we can hang on to that and live by it. In God's name, amen.